This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Intense 48 hours here in Israel between uh, security and politics and a discussion about the future of American Jews. We have a lot to talk about. It's Unholy. I'm Yanit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. Unholy to Jews on the news uh, from Keshet Podcast. You know, usually, Jonathan, I'm polite and I ask you how you're doing. And we talk a little bit about that. But there have been uh, big and significant things going on here in the last 48 hours. So let's maybe kind of directly dive into into that. We should, because lots has been going on. So fill us in. First of all, uh, Wednesday morning saw Jerusalem rocked by two uh, bomb blasts in two different bus stations. A 15-year-old Israeli, uh, Aryeh Shchupak, was uh, killed in these bomb blasts. And they reminded uh, Jerusalemites of what they were trying to forget about those years that uh, every week there was a terror attack in uh, Jerusalem. This is important, uh, Jonathan, because it is not the sort of lone assailant uh, scenario we've been seeing a lot of in the past uh, months, this is an organization. This is uh, a lot of people uh, figuring out how to detonate the bomb from uh, uh, remotely. You see uh, this sort of terror organization that is trying to turn this into a terror wave. So that is an important thing to say. Another story, a horrific story coming out of uh, Janine is of an Israeli teenager, 18 years old, Tiran Farrow, who essentially got into a terrible car accident, was severely injured, died in a Janine in a hospital in Janine, and was abducted. His body was abducted by uh, militants, uh, Palestinian militants. Why this is important, oh, this morning uh, uh, his, his body was returned to his family. This is important because it indicates the weakness of the Palestinian Authority and the and security apparatus. If it had been stronger, this might have been prevented. So you see uh, all of these signals that there is tension in the air. And to add upon that, a government in Israel that is in transition, and we know that in these kind of sensitive weeks, you're always going to have uh, the malignant actors in the region trying to test the waters. And when you add upon that, and, and some in the defense echelon in Israel will add upon that, the plans of this specific uh, government when it uh, regards the Palestinian Authority, some of the more uh, radical parts of the government have been talking about dismantling the Palestinian Authority and going back to running the daily lives of the Palestinians. I think we'll talk a little bit more in our program about plans and, and what their uh, chances of happening are. But this also gives you the backdrop of everything that has been happening here in the last two days. It could turn into something more serious in that regard. How's Just, your week been, Jonathan? Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> I mean, uh, that's very heavy to all of that coming in a very short period. I mean, it's on the Palestinian Authority point, in a way, the evidence of this week could cut both ways, couldn't it? Because you could imagine some people saying, look, they're so bad at providing, you know, their job of, of imposing security on the territories they administer, therefore, get them out of the way. And you could imagine Israeli hawks saying, we should do this job ourselves. On the other hand, you could say, look, if this much bad stuff happens with a weakened Palestinian Authority, just imagine what it would be like if there was none there at all. And it was just a void there, because of course, Israel cannot, you know, in a realistically police every street, every block. And so the same facts can be, as always with this, you know, politically charged, polarised uh, 
situations. It could be taken in both ways. Just on the point about the young man whose body was returned to his parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I first read about that, I thought, oh my, we're going, this is going to be one of these sagas that could go on, as people remember, in the case of both people who were alive, Gilad Shalit famously, but yeah. also the case of Remains, these, the Ron Arad in Lebanon, these can go on for years, if not decades. There's still Hadar Gordon and, and Oron Shaul who are still in Gaza, their bodies are still there and haven't been returned to Israel for eight years, right? I mean, right, so, yeah. so what was it, just on this small point, and then we're going to get onto the broader mm -hmm. con context, but what unlocked this so rapidly that actually the families have been reunited with the remains of their son or brother. How did that, how was it affected in this particular case? I think part of the fact was due to uh, the fact that he wasn't a soldier. He's a Druze Israeli, and the community, the Druze community, put a lot of pressure not only on the Israeli government, but also on the Palestinians to bring him back as fast as possible. And I think this made a lot of headlines in the Palestinian Authority as well, because the story itself is, is horrific, right, of this uh, young man who who died uh, in a hospital and his body was abducted. So, yeah, I think that that is part of it, the fact that he wasn't a Jewish soldier, but rather a Druze Israeli. Israeli changed manners in this specific story. It's still a, a terrible story, right? I mean, yeah, in, in I did wonder if it was it. his Druze identity that had unlocked it, and that, in a way, in its own way, is also a sort of sobering slash dispiriting thought that this mm -hmm. is becoming a, you know, this isn't just a national conflict where having an Israeli passport is is bad enough. It's, it's sort of sectarian, and his, mm -hmm. you know, his his uh, identity played a crucial part. This has happened in this interregnum between an outgoing government and an incoming one. That It means there's a huge challenge. I, I wonder what the politics are of this, whether Israeli voters are saying, well, this shows you how Lapid and the outgoing government weren't in strong enough charge, or is this already the first headache of the new incoming Netanyahu-led government? Well, both, actually. Um, it gives the Netanyahu supporters the excuse to say, oh, look how weak uh, Lapid was on terror. We showed you and we told you. And of course, also being the headache of the uh, new uh, government. Look, the government that is shaping up, and again, uh, we will see that new government being sworn in, I assume, in about two weeks. It will take a little bit more of uh, coalition negotiations and some procedural issues, but I think we will see this uh, government in uh, two weeks. And we have to say, this, right? Ben Benjamin Netanyahu will reside over his sixth government. He will be the prime minister. But And I told you this two weeks ago, Jonathan, I'm saying it again. This is a Ben Gvir Smotrich government, meaning that for the first time in his own history, Netanyahu is not only the most moderate element of his own government. And we, we know that he liked that maneuvering between the left and the right parts of his coalition. He would always tell the right, the left is pressuring me, and always tell the left, the right is pressuring me. He won't have it this time. He will be the most moderate one, but he will also, for the first time, not be the one with his hands on, the only uh, person with his hands on the helm. You have Smotrich, you have Ben Gvir, they are very powerful. You have the two ultra-Orthodox parties, Shas and United Torah Judaism. All of them know that this is the only government that he can form. And that is why they're putting the demands, they're skyrocketing with their demands, because they know that this is the only uh, government. Now, you know, even you ask, and you occasionally know the Israeli society more than I do, which is both annoying and weird. But you even you asked me uh, two weeks ago, is it possible that maybe Benny Gantz will uh, be part of the government and 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 Benville won't? Uh, I'm telling you again, that is not uh, shaping up to be the reality. This, I would imagine, is an opening for Itamar Ben-Gvir as he 
for one thing, pitches for the public security portfolio for that job. His whole campaign, as I understood it, was predicated on this idea that I, you need to be get tough on the terror threat and the criminal threat, merging the two, basically meaning the Arab threat, as he would see it. And I'm guessing this is a gift politically for him because he can say, now you need me in charge. It would not be a gift if he was already in post because he could. people would then say, well, see, you haven't made any difference. But right now, mm-hmm. in, a, in a quite macabre way, actually, the timing is almost perfect for him because I would have thought this prepares for his entrance as the get-tough public security minister. Well, yeah, I mean, he's definitely uh, campaigning to be the public security minister, and I assume that that is the role he will actually uh, get. Interestingly enough, he was asked yesterday uh, after the bomb blast in Jerusalem at the scene, you know, what would you do differently? And then he said, well, we'd go back to targeting killings, which, by the way, Israel's never left just to be the fact checker here, right? And the other thing is I would uh, clamp down on the rights of Palestinian uh, prisoners in the terrorist uh, uh, Palestinian prisoners in Israeli prisons. I talked to you a week or two ago about the scenario of what might happen if that actually is the case. But the important thing here is that all of Itamar Ben-Gvir's ideology is soon to meet reality. And I think one of the more interesting uh, parts of this new government will be how are all of these theories, right, and ways to also attack the former government, what is going to happen when it actually confronts reality? Now, again, look at who Netanyahu is putting in charge of all of the important junctions in Israeli society. Bezalel Smotrich is going to be the finance minister, and right now his demand is also to be responsible for the, the, the civic authority, which means he will be essentially responsible for the settlements, right? So you're, you might have a settler dealing with the settlement issues, the orthodox, ultra-orthodox dealing with religion issues. This is going to be, for the first time in Israeli politics, this is going to be the picture. And of course, the main issue here is going to be the judicial reform, and he put his main acolyte, his, his, his most loyal follower, Yariv Levine, a name that doesn't mean a lot to people outside Israel, but definitely someone who wants a judicial revolution and can make it happen. The plans are in motion and the, the way to execute them also uh, are pretty clear. The man you mentioned, as absolutely you're right, has no profile outside the country, hasn't got attention, but the project that you refer to absolutely has. And the notion that Israel as a uh, state of laws is in peril has really penetrated. It's to me fascinating because I don't feel the wave has really come onto the shore yet of this whole phenomenon. And that's partly because the government isn't announced and unveiled and in post yet. But when it does, uh, and when it is, I think you'll see people then going through the back catalogue of Ben Gvian Smotrich's remarks. My own personal prediction is particularly the LGBT stuff is going to land hard. Um, which is, I've been asking people this, is it, is it odd that that's the bit that gets people angry rather than the anti-Arab bigotry, etc.? But I think that will be a thing. But the other point will be, in, and particularly for diaspora communities, uh, Jewish communities, I suspect, is the notion of this assault on the Supreme Court and on the notion of judicial independence. And the reason why I say that is because if you are in the defending Israel business, and there are lots of people in lots of Jewish communities around the world who think that's a constitutive part of their Jewish identity, one of the things they've fallen back on is 
that you know that you may not like the government but you've got to hand it to the supreme court that is proves that israel is a real liberal democracy that it, there's a proper check on executive power and pointing to various decisions that's become a harder argument to make incidentally in recent years because the supreme court have often not gone the way that people outside israel would like it to have done but if that's but you in, can't question the independence yeah the uh, these Smotrich's sites, that's going to be a thing. Um, and so this man you mentioned, whose name is as yet not well known, may well become more well known. Yes, look, the Yariv Levine plan for the judicial system in Israel says this essentially, right? First of all, an ability to override the Supreme Court's decisions and more politician, uh, more political involvement in the appointment of judges, uh, right? So right now, Israel has this committee of lawyers and judges and politicians. The people who support the judicial reform or judicial revolution think this politicians should be a larger part. Also, uh, something like, you know, Israel obviously doesn't have a constitution, but there are basic laws and, and, and specifically uh, a basic law on human dignity and liberty. That is something that these people want to change and essentially nullify. That, of course, means that anything that is close to a Bill of Rights in Israel uh, will be diminished. All of this has huge ramifications internally and externally. We should add to that the fact that the prime minister or the incoming prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is standing trial for three corruption cases. So that makes his judicial reform, how shall I say this in the most understated way, raises some questions about the timing of these reforms. It definitely is dramatic internally and, and outside, as you say. It, will, it can change the face of Israel's judicial system. Well, I think um, the people will be watching that partly. Uh, I, in my mind, I naturally split it between a sort of non-Jewish and Jewish reaction. So I think the non-Jewish reaction will be that Israel becomes this fascinating sort of test case of the next wave or the next step in the in the project of nationalist populism. So people have watched Viktor Orban, they watched Bolsonaro, obviously they watched Trump. This is now another round of that. People are watching Italy, um, obviously. But this, what you described there of A, preventing the Supreme Court overruling political decisions and B, having more of a hand in appointing judges, this is Orbanization. And this is what Viktor Orban has done in Hungary. And people will want to see how this plays out in Israel, a country which, for all the reasons we talk about so often on this podcast, gets more attention than Hungary. And therefore, what it does will be noticed as part of this international political project of populism, a nationalist populism. But the Jewish reaction, I think, will be on what exactly is on this agenda of Smotrich and Ben Gvir and Levin. What are they planning in terms of the specifics, uh, all those core Jewish identity issues about equality for Reform Judaism, and particularly conversion, who is a Jew? And, uh, you know, Reform Judaism is the largest of the big streams in the American Jewish context. So let me just jump in on that and say, Jonathan, that first of all, yes, there are some plans on the table. And yes, there is a majority uh, to pass these plans and to execute them. But I do think that it's important to say that there is a large part of the Israeli public that doesn't agree with these policies, right? Uh, that part lost the elections. But it doesn't mean that this clash over 
the ideology and, in a sense, the future of this country. I, I, I don't want to be as dramatic as saying the heart and soul of this country, but really the future and the direction this country is going. That clash has only begun with these election results. It hasn't ended. Uh, it hasn't been determined. So I think it's important to say that, that, again, these plans are going to hit reality and they're going to hit the part of the population that doesn't agree with it. And I think it will be very interesting to see where all this is heading. The, the left and the center left in Israel and the center are going to have to uh, pick their battles, right? But there's a lot to pick from. But there is going to be a battle over this. Yeah, no, the stakes are extremely high. Um, the forces, though, are quite depleted on the opposition side, you know, with only one of the two mainstream center-left parties actually making it into the Knesset and so on. So battle will certainly be joy. Time to introduce our special guest. Eric Alterman is a historian, a commentator, journalist of long standing, distinguished professor of English at Brooklyn College. He's written many, many books, but now he's come out with one he has been working on, he says, for many decades. In some ways, it's a project extremely close to him personally, as well as professionally. The book is We Are Not One, the subtitle, A History of America's Fight over Israel. Uh, Eric Alterman, welcome to Unholy. It's nice to meet you, Yonit and Johnny. It's great to see you, and I hope we can see each other in person soon. So, Eric, essentially this book is a history of the debate over Israel in the U.S. Uh, and I want to, we will talk extensively about the history, but since there are some urgent questions here in Israel going on as we speak, I would want to open up by asking you, this rift between American Jewry and Israeli Jews that opened up I think it's arguable, but mainly during the Trump years. Is this rift now that we lo we're looking at an Israeli government with Ben Gvir and Smotrich, will that become something that we won't be able to fix? Well, yes. Um, is that short enough? <laughs> <laughs> Please elaborate. Love it. Eric Alterman, thanks so much for coming on Unholy. <laughs> um, yeah, well, the thing is, is it's been building for a long time. Uh, the, the shorthand uh, is that Israel is a red country and American Jews are a blue country. And this is moving uh, even further in those directions. The Israeli election put a stamp on this. And the American election, American Jews were once again 75% uh, roughly for uh, Democrats. Interestingly, the complication here is that American Jewish organizations are closer to the Israeli view than they are to the American Jewish view. These are organizations that call themselves pro-Israel and are increasingly uh, identified with the views of Christian Zionists rather than American Jews. But uh, they speak for American Jews in the media and certainly in Congress. And so uh, U.S. policy changes a lot more slowly than uh, American Jewish opinion. So how does that then play out in a, in a situation like this? The, the, a lot of people feel a line has been crossed with these two, the two politicians that Yoni mentioned, Ben Gvir and Smotrich, as if that's a Rubicon has been crossed kind of thing. So let's say that's true and it feels as if that's a deal breaker for a lot of American Jews. How does that then play out if they can't express themselves through their organizations for the reasons you've just explained? What does that alienation look like? What form does it take? Well... I like to answer this question by saying I'm a historian, not a 
Futurologist. Uh, Uri Geller type guy. <laughs> People going to get that? Uri Geller? That's from like the 1960s when I was well, We still get it here um, in Israel, believe me. But, but hey, listen, uh, in two ways. In the first place, the uh, head of the reform movement, Rick Jacobs, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, he made a very strong statement saying, don't do this. This is terrible. We want nothing to do with this to Netanyahu, which will be ignored as virtually all American Jewish statements uh, to the Israeli politicians are ignored. And so uh, that's kind of a Rubicon for organized Jewry. But it's also, a, I guess, a canary in the coal mine because that reform is the most liberal of American uh, Jewish dominations. But I think more so, more important, is that American Jews will walk away from organized uh, institutional Jewry. The book I've just written is a history, but at the end, I, I enter it myself as a as an American Jew. I don't appear really in the entire book until the end where I say I'm concerned that American Jewish institutions have allowed themselves to become Zionized to the point where the actual substance of what it means to be an American Jew, as opposed to this vicarious cheerleader for Israel, has been lost. And that's one reason, not the only reason, but one reason why there's been a, a really alarming deterioration of the number of young people joining either reform or conservative, or in my case, reconstructionist Jewish synagogues and and uh, walking away from Judaism entirely. So um, the optimistic way to look at this is to say, well, there could be an actual revival of diaspora Judaism, uh, which has been sort of withering on the vine since 1967. Or what seems more likely is that there'll be a withering away of the numbers and that um, Orthodox Jewry, Orthodox Jewry will become increasingly influential in America. So, so that is exactly my question. I saw, uh, I don't know how uh, um, accurate this is, but there was a Fox News exit poll after the midterms saying that 33% of Jewish voters voted uh, Republican. And also, as you say, the Orthodox Jewish community, which is one of the largest growing communities in the United States, that kind of shifts things a little bit in a, in a different direction, doesn't it? It's always been about between... 28% and 33%. And 33, you know, it's, there's a margin of error. So let's say it's 30%. That's mm -hmm. about what it, what we're used to. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the scare statistic is that, uh, whereas Orthodox Jews are 10% of American Jewry, uh, 40% of Jewish babies born in New York City are Orthodox Jewish babies. And, and these, these are the trends. And they are definitely in the conservative camp, not so much because they care about national politics. They are much, they, they are down the line with Israel, but that's not how they vote. One, one thing that the press has done a terrible job of informing people of is they think that American Jews vote on the basis of Israel and they don't at all. Uh, American, American Jews are just under, depends how you count them, about 2% of the country and only about 4% of them say Israel is the most important thing they vote on. And yet it's used as a, as a, as a sign of what Jews care about in America. And that's just wrong. So, um, uh, with, with Orthodox Jews, they care more about their yeshivas and, and their, and their right to have this, uh, circumcision ritual. And American Jews care much more about healthcare and, and, uh, democracy in this country. And that's, this has become most pronounced now because of the role that APAC played in the primaries. This year and in the general election for the very first time, they nakedly intervened on their own. Usually they've always intervened 
uh, with a cutout. But this time they said, we're giving money to the people we want to support and we don't care at all about their effect on American democracy. So they gave money to 109 yep. insurrectionists and they intervened in primaries across the board where they just went after the most conservative candidate. And this was the opposite view of most American Jews. So we have, we have, a, we have evidence of a split that's, that's, um, easier to see than it's ever been before. And this make, goes to your point that, in a way, the official pro-Israel position speaks more of Christian Zionist groups than it does of American Jewish sensibilities. And in a way, a way to understand a group like APAG is that it represents, you know, American pro-Israelism rather than the American Jewish community, which and the two have diverged. But I want to pick up on your thing before when you said that, in a way, it has hollowed out what it means to be American an American Jew, this, uh, you know, the Zionization of American Jewry. And in, I know in other places, you've also talked about the way that American Jewry became about either Israel or the Holocaust. And both of those are really problematic. What would you think would be a better, if there is going to be a change now in this the rest of this century, what, what should fill up that void of American Jewish identity? If it's not going to be show our remembrance and not going to be Israel solidarity, we know your answer for the Orthodox, but for everyone else, what should be that content? Well, see, yes. That's the big problem that I don't have an answer to, and I, I wish you hadn't asked me. Um, in, 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 in the 1940s, American Jewry was in crisis over for two reasons. One was there was a terrible sense of shame and horror and weakness over their inability to do much to help the European Jews during the Holocaust. And support for the creation of the State of Israel solved that problem because the instead of this shameful, horrible, almost unspeakable past, we had this brand new future, which was wonderful. And it, it I mean, it, as it was presented, and in many ways it was, of this new Jew, this Paul Newman and Exodus Jew, you know. Um, and then in 1967, this was intensely multiplied so that the Jewish organizations, I mean, actually, interestingly, most people don't, quite get this. But after the State of Israel was founded, even though American Jews instituted the largest, I would say the largest lobbying campaign for anything in all of history, as far as I can tell, I'm a historian, I'll, I'll stand by that statement. I mean, there were, there were towns in the United States that sent more postcards to Congress than there were people in those towns. Um, <laughs> but then, but then Israel was kind of put on a shelf and, and, and American Jews, they would, they would send money to plant trees and so forth. And, uh, maybe even march in a parade, but they didn't really care very much about Israel uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. They had, they were concerned about separation of church and state, about civil rights, about social services and so forth. And if you looked at the reports of the American Jewish organizations, they, they were quite similar to what you would have read in an ACLU report. I mean, they were just, to be an American Jew meant to be a liberal and to have pride in the role that American Jews were going to play in making America a better country. 1967 changed all that. Um, the 1966, I looked this up yesterday, the 1966 American Jewish Committee uh, did not mention Israel until page 35 of its uh, annual report. Mm -hmm. After 1967, it was all Israel. Everything that they were doing in terms of social justice and social services fell by the wayside. Now, there's a problem here in that uh, at that point, again, as I implied, it wasn't really clear what it meant to be a Jew in America save for the fact that Jesus was born in the same way you and I were born, Johnny. Um, 
And, and, and you, Yoni. I was, waiting, I was like, was I born differently? I should ask my mother. Okay, probably not. Probably not. I was not. wondering what that was getting at to you, but <laughs> yeah. we've, we've so, cleared that out. So, but, but, but my point is, is that all of the resources, all of the money, all of the time, all of the expertise has been poured into these basically two categories, support for Israel, the Israeli government, and remembrance of the Holocaust. Now a lot of it's going towards the fight against anti-Semitism in the United States which is both the Holocaust and anti-Semitism are, are kind of tributaries of support for Israel. So the idea of what does it mean to be an American Jew, a secular American Jew? What do we believe in? How are we going to attract young people to want to stay uh, Jewish? America is the first country ever where you could decide whether or not you were a Jew. Every other country in history, you were a Jew if you were born a Jew, period. And, and that was usually a bad thing from the standpoint of citizenship. But... Uh, Intermarriage is is uh, taking a lot of Jews and a lot of Jewish children away from the practice of Jewry, but also so is the choice. The the choice because the choice seems to be either support this illiberal, uh, increasingly theocratic Goliath type government as opposed to the David that was sold to American Jews um, earlier, or, uh, or 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 walk away. So I would like to see. Uh, you know, even if you believe that everything Israel does is wonderful and, and they're absolutely right in everything they do, it's still not going to work for this vicarious experience of this other country thousands of miles away and the insistence that you have to support it because of the Holocaust, which is also increasingly distant. It worked for me, to tell you the truth. It worked for people of my generation. I'm 62 years old. It didn't work for many people after that, and it certainly doesn't work today. So... That that whole that whole orientation has to be reconsidered and rethought. But I do I do wonder about something, Eric, because it sounds like you're talking about uh, conditional love, right? That you you're saying we don't have any reason to love Israel because it's becoming, in our view, increasingly illiberal, increasingly extreme. The government, right? We should say not mm-hmm. necessarily uh, 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 the people, but definitely the government and the and the politics. Why is it? Why is it that there isn't a way to find Obviously, our relationship is is complicated. We're dedicating a podcast to that relationship, so you know it's a thing to talk about. Why isn't there a way to find... You lived under the Trump years. I assume that you had dilemmas about how do I continue to love my country even if I don't like, I can't agree with, I vehemently disagree with the the, the administration. Why isn't Israel viewed in the same way of saying, listen, I, I love it, I still support it in a way, but it's it's difficult for me. It's It's more complicated for me. Historically speaking... Israel has asked, I have a quote from Marty Peretz in the book Mm -hmm. saying, I checked my dovishness at the delicatessen door. Um, But in fact, Israel has been asking for decades for American Jews to check their liberalism at the door. It's liberalism versus Zionism in many, many cases. Uh, And that checking that has been, the the bill for that is too large now. It, it It used to be manageable and it's too large. It's too large because the uh, the thrill of the creation of the state of Israel and the horror of the Holocaust are more distant, and it's too large because of what Israel is becoming. Um, the book you may have mentioned in the beginning is called We Are Not One, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm speaking directly to this issue. America and Israel are not one. Is- United States supports Israel basically in everything it does, even though it's a very different country. American Jews have historically supported Israel in everything it does, even though we are a very different people. 
American Jews are themselves not one anymore. We can't talk about Israel in public. You won't hear rabbis giving sermons on Israel anymore in shul because whatever they say, it makes people too angry at each other. That's actually why I wrote this book, because it's impossible to talk about. Everything's complicated and everything infuriates the person you're talking about. So it took me 512 pages to explain why that is. You want to make everyone angry. So interesting. Can I, sorry, can I just go on no, Yoni no, no, first, no. then I'm going to jump it's, in on them. It's your turn. Go. Well, no, go on, Yoni. No, I, I think that you're... Guys, you're, you're t- taking up my time. <laughs> no, it's, it's <laughs> very strange. It's like an Israeli and an, an Englishman, and they're both too polite. That's very weird. Okay, I'll be the impolite Israeli. Um, you are talking about the bill, and I want to maybe shift this a little bit to the uh, issue of, of aid to Israel. Uh, Jonathan and yeah. I have slight disagreements on that. I interviewed President Biden four months ago, and I asked him really? about the voices. Yes, and I asked him about the voices in the Democratic Party uh, saying that you should condition aid to Israel. Israel. And he said, and I quote, those voices are few and they are wrong. And I wonder... This is exactly... I'm sorry to interrupt you. This is exactly the issue where you will see it, okay? Mm -hmm. Joe Biden said, when he ran for the Democratic nomination, he said, I can't believe that my opponents think that we should condition aid on Israel. And that was true of both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who were the two closest competitors to him. Mm -hmm. If you ask me how is this going to change in the near term, I think Joe Biden will be the last American president who refuses to condition aid to Israel. Now, still, Israel's going to get its aid. Barack Obama, who the Israelis hate and American Jews love, signed a memo of understanding giving Israel $38 billion a year for 10 years. This is unprecedented in all diplomatic history that a country would commit itself to giving 10 years worth of aid where it can't even be changed. You know how it can be changed? We can give Israel more. So after Israel attacked I won't say so. After there was a war in in May of 2021, there was a vote in Congress to replace the billion dollars or so worth of um, Iron Dome missiles that Israel had used to protect itself from attacks from Hamas, okay? There were eight votes against. There's 538 members of Congress. There were eight votes against and one abstention. The abstention was AOC. Mm-hmm. So that's the strength right now in Congress of people who are willing to take this position. That is definitely going to grow because it's actually not far from the position of American Jews. American Jews probably supported it during wartime. But most so just of on that, Eric, just yeah. explain that because I think people will be puzzled by that. Why is it that most, all but you know, a handful of members of the House and Senate vote for this ultra pro-Israel position, which is out of step even with American Jews? What is propelling those people to do that so that even AOC, you know, ultra-liberal figure, only manages an abstention. And yet, as you're saying, American Jews would be way more dovish, more to the left. So what is it in the system that is pushing those people to be more, if you like, more Catholic than the Pope, more pro-Israel than America's Jews? There are at least three reasons. One is we're a very deeply flawed democracy in which money plays a larger role than people do. Number two, and this is important, why is Johnny? Why is it impossible to pass meaningful gun control in this country when ninety percent of Americans want it? Because the NRA is so focused on preventing it, and people who want gun control have a lot of concerns. They're just as concerned about abortion. They're just as concerned about civil rights. They're just as concerned about democracy. But the people who care only about this one issue are there every day, all the time. So. The right in Israel, the quote-unquote pro-Israel lobby, is 100% focused on this. They're incredibly well-funded. 
Whereas the people, the American Jews and others who, they, they, they I mean, to lay it out, Republicans are 100% behind uh, Israel. That Bibi Netanyahu could be the Republican nominee for president if Donald Trump were to drop out, conceivably. He might even be eligible. No, I guess he wasn't born in this country. Um, <laughs> Don't give uh, him ideas, Eric. Right. But right now, the Democratic Party is divided in half between people who support Israel more than they support the Palestinians. Young Democrats and liberal Democrats are now more supportive of the Palestinians than they are of the Israelis. But that is not at all reflected in the political system, in part because the political system runs on money and structural power rather than on democracy. And again, remember what I said earlier, only 4% or so of American Jews put Israel at the top of their concerns. So here I've got to jump in with one specific, and then I'm going to throw it over to Johnny. But this just thing on money and structural power, because it came through to me a few times reading your book, which is you say at some point APAC is the most powerful foreign policy lobby in the United States. You've just talked now about the money advantage, the built-in power that warps policy, makes it more presidential. Why is it okay for you, Eric Alterman, to say those things? And yet we know American Jewish world and beyond you know, when it was incensed when Mearsheimer and Walt said similar things in their book, The Israel Lobby. Well, we'll see if it's okay for me to say these kinds of things. The book's only two days old. Look, I, that, again, this is why I wrote a book. I say, I say quite a few things like this. I say that Jewish money is, uh, Jewish financial contributions are more powerful than Jewish votes and much more important. And I quote a lot of conservative Jews saying this, occasionally says crows about how powerful they are and how wonderful they are because of their ability to defeat certain congressmen and the role they play. I also say that Jews, Jews, well, I won't, I won't, I won't give you. Uh, don't give uh, everything away, Eric, but I do want to, I, I mean, I want to focus on like what we No, see. but let me, let me answer John's question. Sure, sure. Walt and Mearsheimer made a few mistakes. One was they specifically blamed American Jews or not American Jews. They blamed the Israel lobby for the war in Iraq. And that's just wrong. And they, they made this claim and they couldn't prove it. Um, if they had made what, what I tried to do in this book is to make a more subtle claim that is more defensible. And and but actually, Barack Obama, if you read his memoir, he basically makes the Walton Mearsheimer uh, argument better than they did. There's a story I love in um, in the beginning of, Ob- uh, uh, of the Obama chapter. He, he sends Ben Rhodes, his deputy national security advisor, to see a liberal Democratic congressman. Uh, to get him to support Obama's demand for a freeze on Israeli settlement. And, and Ben Rhodes comes back all agitated. I think that's the, that's the word they, Obama uses. And Obama says, what's the problem? And he says, he's really upset about our attempt to prevent settlement building. Mm-hmm. And Obama says, but he's against settlements. And Rhodes says, yeah, but he's more against doing anything about settlement building. And, and I say, this was the position of a Democratic congressman. At the beginning of the Obama administration, and it was the position of the Obama administration at the end of the Obama administration. And that's because of the structural power that is in part money and it's in part just really good organization on the part of the quote unquote pro-Israel lobby, which is exactly analogous to the power of the NRA in the United States. I'm going to be the Israeli who's just going to politely um, protest the comparison between the NRA and APAC. But I do want to say just something about aid, right, that we should probably say, first of all, that all of this or most of the aid is then spent on American uh, companies inside the U.S. The procurement clauses are all known. There's also the claim of a lot of intelligence. Israel is the only country in the world 
that gets American military aid and does not account have to account for health. All of the procurement clauses are known. Maybe they're not published, but what what Israel takes the money out they're of not enforced. is known. Is is no. Uh, well, we'll talk about the enforcement. Every other country we'll has talk to about the enforcement in, in a minute. We'll talk about Israel. the enforcement. But we, we, we should talk about maybe intelligence uh, uh, cooperation, security cooperation that has saved American lives here in this region and other places. We should also maybe mention the fact that in many ways Israel is a research and development center for many of the American industries. But I really I don't want to argue into the aid. What I do want to discuss, if I may, and you say this with, with a lot of exasperation. I understand you say Israel ignores what the American administration is saying, what American jury is saying. I want to actually not discuss or t- shift it away from the maybe easier example of the settlements. But let's talk about something else. The fact that for many decades, there were two prime ministers here in this in this country that took down two nuclear reactors in Syria and Iraq, right? It was Begin uh, in Iraq and, and Olmert in Syria. The United States, in both cases, the administration was less than supportive of those actions. But Israel was right and the United States was wrong on these in these issues. So aren't there certain places in which the, United, the Israel doesn't need to listen to, to the United States? Sure. It's possible that Israel is right and the United States is wrong. The United States' government is often wrong. That's theoretically possible. But my point, and what one of the reasons I call the book We Are Not One, is that they are very different countries in very different situations, and they have different interests. And yet, historically, the United States has supported Israel in virtually everything Israel wants to do. Even in the examples that you pick. Reagan was furious at mm-hmm. Begin for taking out the uh, Iraqi nuclear reactor and, and, and ignoring international law and an act of war and flying over countries that, mm-hmm. had, that Israel had no right to fly over. But America didn't do anything about it. They complained about it. They didn't do anything about it. In the, in the book, there's, I quote, uh, Bibi Netanyahu was secretly taped telling a group of settlers mm-hmm. saying, America is a thing that can be easily moved. Don't worry about it. We can take care of America. No matter what they say or do, we'll get to do what we want. And that's historically been exactly true. The only president who ever, since the creation of Israel, who ever took on Israel in public in a serious way was Dwight Eisenhower, 1956, when Israel, Britain, and France invaded uh, Egypt over Sinai Mm -hmm. while the Soviet Union had invaded Hungary. And he was furious it's furious in the first part because of the invasion and the United States was trying to create a um, alliance with Arab countries, but also because it took the world's eye off the ball of this Soviet imperialist invasion of Hungary. And he said, go back right away. And Britain and France went back right away. Israel didn't go back right away. So Eisenhower went public and he said, I am going to shut down all aid to Israel, not only uh, U.S. aid, but private aid. You're not going to be, Jews are not going to be allowed to give any money to Israel if Israel doesn't go back. No president has ever said anything like that before or after. But Israel didn't do it. <laughs> Israel said no and waited until they got their demands were met about the policy that they needed done in order to free up trade through the Suez Canal. Um, Israel has always been able to outweigh the United States and do what it was going to do in the first place, even if there was some outrage from American politicians. And, and there often is, uh, because Israel does what it wants. And I'm not even in the book... I'm not taking a position on what Israel does. Again, maybe it's fantastic. Maybe it's great. But it's not America. It's not American Jews. Uh, we have very different lives and very different concerns. And, and the fiction that the, the, of quote unquote shared values and the fiction that the, uh, American Jews, what they care about is support for Israel, which is put forth, um, both by Israeli prime ministers and by American Jewish organizations is no longer credible. 
Okay, we are very nearly out of time. I want to ask you a slightly personal question to close, which is I think there'll be some people hearing this who will be surprised to hear the strength of the case you're making coming from Eric Altman, because you were positioned and thought of on the American left as one of those people who was, within the terms of the American left, you used to write for The Nation magazine, as an advocate for Israel, relatively speaking, or a Zionist, pro-Zionist writer. And and yet you're being really trenchant and uh, hear about the power of the lobby and about the wrongness of policy decisions Israel's taken. The word Zionist, which is a problematic word, do you would you still attach that word to your own views, your own position? Have you moved, or did people just misunderstand you in the in the years before? Well, sometimes I call myself a liberal realist with regard to this question, and sometimes I call myself an anti anti Zionist. <laughs> And, and the reason I call myself an anti-anti-Zionist is because I think the question is closed. I think Israel is a country. It's going, it's staying there. It's not going anywhere. And the question is, what do we do about the issues that arise between uh, American Jews in Israel and the United States in Israel, et cetera? I, um, at the nation, I was easy, I was one of the only people, I was there for 25 years. I'm still on the masthead. I was one of the only people there who cared whether or not there was an Israel. And, and, uh, and so in that context, I was seen as a, the voice of APAC. Um, and this is, <laughs> this is evidence of how strong the quote unquote anti-Zionist position has become on the left. I'm, I'm a, in the English department at Brooklyn College. I, I'm also probably one of the only people there who, who takes this position. Um, the, the BDS movement, which we haven't talked about just as well, I suppose, has colonized the American left and much of academia. To my mind, as a liberal realist, it's not a serious position. Uh, again, I, I wish I wish the argument about Zionism were conducted only in seminar rooms, because it's a very interesting question as to whether or not creating a state was the best thing to do in 1948. I agree, something had to be done to save the hundreds of thousands of refugees who were sitting still in concentration camps. And if creating a state was the only way to do it, I'm all for it, because th that was an emergency. And, and there were no Arab, no, no Arab countries, uh, were allowing them to emigrate to Palestine and the United States was not allowing them in. So if that was the way to do it, great. Um, after that, Israel becomes a state. It survives. The question is not whether or not you believe in Zionism any more than you believe in France or England. It's, it's there and no one's going to take it away. The question is what to do on a, on a moment to moment basis, given the situation. And I think the whole issue of Zionism versus anti-Zionism muddies those waters purposely for both sides. Again, it avoids all the complications. This is 512 pages about the complications. And that's why I felt the need to write this book. The book is called We Are Not One. Eric Altman, thank you so much for coming on Unholy. It was a real happener. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The book is fascinating. The conversation, I think, was really interesting. He is, you know, provocative as a thinker, but he is, as he said towards the end, he is saying uh, something or bringing into the open a conversation which has probably, you know, been a bit suppressed. And I think that itself makes it very, very stimulating. Yeah, I, I found the parts about what, where is American jury heading vis-a-vis -vis Israel and where, where is it heading vis-a-vis -vis its internal uh, debate and, and internal uh, conflict. I, I thought that was um, extremely interesting. I think we have some awards to... Um, we no? do, as uh, always. We must always... Should I kick off with the Chutzpah Award? 
The recipient obviously cannot be here in person to receive it because he is being detained. Um, but I think Harvey Weinstein deserves a little bit of a chutzpah award. Obviously, the judicial system has spoken uh, on his crimes, but they are in the spotlight again, thanks to the uh, debut of the new film She Said about the journalistic uh, breakthrough in exposing Weinstein's record of sexual harassment and more. And Jodie Cantor, one of the two New York Times reporters who broke that story, has now said more about how uh, Harvey Weinstein sought to pressure her not to reveal the story once it was known. And he appealed to her, she says like this, Weinstein repeatedly tried to relate to me kind of Jew to Jew, she says. He appealed to her um, as the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. and, 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 And she says, the idea that he was invoking something so sacred to try to avoid responsibility for his own wrongdoing was incredibly manipulative. He basically was pressurizing her, saying, come on, you're a Jew like me, Let, don't do this. You know? That is and terrible. She says, Weinstein's assumption that tribalism would somehow trump my ethics as a reporter was such a miscalculation, this idea that she would be, her words, distracted by a common Jewish bond. I don't know whether this applies to you as a journalist in Israel, Yoni, but I have to say once or twice that has happened to no. me. No, really? Uh, where Can you where say subjects more? of stories have sort of tried to say, look, we are both kinsmen and therefore don't do this. And uh, But, you know, not Weinstein, but others. Wow. But I think it deserves a chutzpah award. And more than that. Uh, wow. Okay. Um, I will go for the uh, match, I think, because it, it just uh, fits. Uh, and I'm giving it to Ben uh, Philippe, who wrote a book, a young adult novel called The Field Guide to the North American Teenager. But what uh, caught everyone's eye was the book dedication that went viral. And I have to read it to you in full, if I may. To my mother, Belzy, I would have made a terrible doctor, mom. People would have died. (laughs) Which I think is so perfect for mothers and particularly Jewish mothers everywhere, right? It's like I had to be a writer because I could not be a doctor. I love this. It's perfect. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant piece of, it's like a little haiku about the (laughs) Jewish mother-son relationship. In such a few words, he conveys so much. Of course, he doesn't need to say that she wanted him to be a doctor. That's left implied. But also the idea that, you know, the published author isn't quite enough for the mother who wanted a doctor, my son the doctor. It's perfect. Um, I'm very glad that Ben Philippe wins our Mensch of the Week award. Um, If you have got something out of this edition of Unholy, please do tell your friends you can comment uh, on facebook or instagram at unholy podcast and do if you can or wherever you get your podcasts submit one of those reviews they do help they do indeed and we will say our thank yous to gaia glazer omer primat uh, rom attic and yair bashan a post happy thanksgiving to our american listeners and uh, keep enjoying the world cup jonathan i am uh, watching it from afar update me on what's going on we'll meet next week Watching it from afar means you're watching it from the next room, means, which means you're not watching it. Um, thank that's you. That's what I was trying we to be. We'll see yeah, you next see. week. Happy post-Thanksgiving if that's what you're doing. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.